All right, Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14, um, and, and we'll, do a little, we'll do a little recap along the way as well. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says this. Paul writes and says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know that... Know then, rather, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Anybody in here into magic? Uh, As a kid, I was enthralled by magic. And, and just the idea that, that these mystical things could happen before my eyes. For some of us in this room uh, are more mature people that have been exposed to magic. Like maybe for you it's Houdini, right? I think for people my age uh, and maybe the generation before, probably David Copperfield. And there have been others. But I think a number of us have seen and stood astounded at some of the incredible things that magicians are able to do. Here's the crazy thing about magic is if it's done really well, you are actually in this place where you believe what you saw to be real. Everything that was done before your eyes, you watched the hands, you saw the motions, you saw the gestures. Your eyes are telling you there's no way for you to believe that what you just saw with your own eyes is not real. But the reality is... When someone is performing magic, what's happening before our eyes is not real. We've been deceived. We've been tricked. It's why we call them card tricks. It's why we call a performance a magic act, right? It's why these astounding things that we see are illusion. Or a sleight of hand. Now we use all those phrases pretty commonly. 
I think sometimes we forget, we get caught up, we get enamored with this thing, and we forget that this is for show. This is not real. When Paul writes in verse 1, and he talks to this group of people, these folks that are believers in these churches in this area called Galatia, he is telling them that they've fallen prey to a spiritual trick. They've been deceived. Ultimately, what is before their eyes is not what is actual and what is true. To give the, just the briefest of recaps, Paul in this letter has sought to do what he normally does. He, he greets these folks and he tells these people in these churches and reminds them of the truth of the gospel. That what he's preaching has been revealed to him by God himself. He describes his salvation story. He describes it, although it's not in deep detail here, you're going to want to go back to Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 15 and some of those places to see that. What Paul does is he tells his story and talks about the calling that God has placed in his life to go and proclaim the truth, the good news of what Jesus has done to free people, both Jew and Gentile alike, in Jesus' life, in his death, and his resurrection. This is Paul's primary concern because he's dealing with a group of people that are starting to believe what he's saying is essentially another gospel. Some other thing that they're going to follow as if it is truly good news. But here's the reality. The thing that they're being deceived by is this group of people called Judaizers. And they're folks that are saying, here's the thing, believe in Jesus. Yes, that's, that's, that's the beginning, but ultimately we got to keep the works of the law. We're still meant to be circumcised. We're still meant to observe certain festivals, certain days. We're still meant to do these things that are recorded in the Scriptures. We've got to do these things. And Paul says, this is deception. This is not true. This does not make one righteous. In fact, leading up to this point in chapter 2, what he talks about is how Peter was deceived. He's sitting with all of these people, people just like you and me, people that did not come from a Jewish background. He's sitting with these folks that in many ways would have been outsiders at this time. And as soon as the Judaizers get here, Peter shrinks back. He really distances himself from these religious outsiders and goes back to be with this religious community from which he's come. He's forgetting the gospel, and he's ultimately falling prey to this deception. And Paul rebukes him, tells him, this is not how to live. You know the truth. What's the truth? That faith, it's faith, it's that by which you're justified. You're not made right with God by the works of the law. You can't keep the works of the law. You've failed. And if you do this, you are treating Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, the crucifixion, as if it's of no worth to you. If you've got to add these good works, if you've got to add this other stuff, if, if Jesus is only kind of able to get you in, and now it's your job to stay in by living and doing these obedient things in the law, You're making very little of Christ's cross. And so now Paul, in this moment, says to these Galatians, and he uses this, it's not foul language, but it's forceful language. He says, you 
foolish Galatians, because look into verse 1, he's telling them that the way in which they're living is ridiculous. They have the very wisdom of God. It's been revealed to them. They know the gospel. They've trusted in Jesus by faith, and yet they've been deceived. They're living as unwise people. He uses this word, and he says, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? What Paul is doing in this moment is he's using a term and a phrase that a lot of his hearers would understand relative to something called the evil eye. You ever heard anybody say, hey, they're giving so-and-so the evil eye, right? Like I think a lot of us as parents of, uh, of, of children of any age perhaps are familiar with this look, right, that you give your kid where you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this until you obey, right? It's like we're trying to like force this thing to happen. You give them that look. Here's what the evil eye is and where it comes from. The idea of the evil eye is really, really well known in Jewish literature. It's known in Jewish history. And Paul's hearers here in Galatia would really understand this. And here's the concept. That through an evil eye, you could cast an evil spell on someone or make something bad happen to them by gazing at them. By looking at them. Now, that makes no sense to us in, in the modern world, probably. Right? Just Okay, I'm just going to look aggressively at someone. And something bad's going to happen to them, right? And here, nonetheless, you're superstitious enough. I know this. You're going to leave and try. You'll leave this place, and you're like, I want to try that thing. Will that work? It will not work. But here's the thing. The eye was seen as the window to the heart and the channel through which one could convey their most innermost thoughts or desires. So, so if the heart is the seat of emotion, the eye was thought to be the thing that let that emotion out toward others. So what does this have to do with bewitch? Well, Paul is using this concept of the evil eye ultimately to say that all these people who are Judaizers, all these people who are saying that Christ's cross is not enough, that the gospel is not enough, that what Jesus has accomplished is not enough, and now you have to go live and do these extra things. you got to be circumcised. you got to do this stuff. If you really want to be in the faith, if you really want to have a real relationship with God, Paul is saying, these people are putting an evil eye on you, essentially. These people have deceived you. They've tricked you. And they're putting an evil desire towards you to make you feel as if you don't do these things, then you're not free. If you don't do these things, you are not redeemed. If you don't do these things, how can you be of God? Galatia's not a lot different, at least emotionally and with regard to our mind, as the place in which we sit now. Every day we do stuff. Some people in this room have the Sunday scaries right now because they know tomorrow's Monday, and they got a bunch of stuff to do, right? There's stuff to do. There's work to be done. There's life to be lived. There's things that have to be performed, Thanks be to God spiritually, that is not our life. 
The gospel has freed us from the need to perform for God. From the need to do things in order to earn his favor. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now look at what he's doing here. The first thing he's doing is he's saying, did you receive? So he's already saying that this in so many ways is a passive thing. That Christ has done the work. And all that we do is receive. We're receivers. So in, with Paul's intelligence and his, and his argumentative skills, one of the things that he's really pushing toward in this moment is causing them to assent to the fact, to realize, to understand, to recognize that the Spirit of God that lives inside them is not something that they procured. It's not something that they went after. It's not something they got. Instead, it was something they received. It was given to them. Now, look at the nature in which that reception takes place. He says, by works of the law or by hearing with faith. So he's asking them in so many ways, these believers, questions that they know the answers to. And they probably haven't been through catechism or something like that necessarily, but they're in a spot where they recognize, well, yeah, we believed. We trusted in what Jesus had done. We believed, we heard the gospel, and we believed. And then he says this in verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And I want to be like crystal clear. This is your battle and it's mine. This is your battle and mine. Every day to believe the gospel, to believe the good news of what Christ has accomplished for us, the death that he's taken on our behalf, the life that he gives us through his resurrection, to believe that we don't become perfected by works of the law. God didn't save us. We didn't begin by the Spirit, and now it's up to us. No, God is the source of our salvation. He's also the sustainer of it. This is really, really crucial for us to understand as believers. This is big-time doctrinal stuff. That we have been saved that we are being saved, that we will be saved. And all of that salvation comes through God himself and what he's done in Jesus and that has applied to us by the very Spirit of God. Not what we do. Christian, you didn't trust in Jesus to be saved and, and now have to live this life where you have to stay there where you're trying and you're fighting tooth and nail to be perfected by the things that you do. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to put this on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. This is a really important picture of us understanding what the gospel is and what God's work is in it. And we get to see the Trinitarian nature of it. We also get to understand the implications of it for past, present, and future. And Paul writes, and this is, this is a key text that we come back to as a church to see and understand the gospel. 
Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So look at the consistency here. Paul's saying to this Corinthian audience, the same thing he's saying to the Galatians audience, this is something that you receive, not something you go out and get. He says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. There's some really important components here. One, which you receive. So Paul acknowledges that past element of receiving, of trusting in Christ. And this is what he's saying to the Galatians. He's saying you began in the Spirit, but also look at this. In which you stand. This is present tense. So the salvation that God has accomplished for believers is not something that just happened at this moment in the past. And now we, in our works, perfect it. No, God has saved us present in this moment. And then by which you are being saved, this is a tense in the Greek that is essentially called future, I guess it's, pre, it's present future. So this is what this means, that from this moment ongoing, this is the work of God in which he is actually saving us. We are being saved by him. What does all this mean? Well, the reality of the gospel is, Paul is saying to this church at Galatia, what Jesus began, what God the Father began, and now the Spirit has begun in you, is not something that you take the mantle on now, you take this on now, and you go live. No, instead, you continually rest, you continually trust in the perfect, perfect, without any additional need of anything else, nothing added, the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. What Christ has done for us. Paul moves into verse 4 and he says, look, here's, here's another reason for this. Did you suffer so many things if indeed it was in vain? Paul is writing to a group of people who are Christians who have indeed suffered some level of persecution. They've suffered persecution from the outside world in addition to kind of this spiritual push that's coming from Judaizers. And Paul's saying, why did you suffer all those things if now you're going to turn away from this and not live in this truth, live in this reality of what Christ has done for you, not truly believe these things? And then he appeals to the father of the faith in Abraham in verse 5 and verse 6. And he says, this is the one whom the Judaizers hold up to you as pillar of righteousness, as the one who lived according to the works of the law, the very teaching of God. And yet, here's what Paul will say. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says to this group of believers, you like to think of Abraham as the father of the faith, the father of the one who, who, who through his lineage came all this incredible teaching and all of the laws that, that we're called to obey. Paul says ultimately all of those things only point to faith in Christ Trust in Christ. 
And then Paul also says, you're remembering Abraham for the wrong thing. You know what? Abraham is, is famous. Do you know the story that, that is in so many ways the catalyst for all of Israel through God's providence? It's Abraham. It's what he does in trusting in God, in believing in what God does. This is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. I think it'd be helpful for us to see this so that we can see where Paul is getting this counted as righteous from. This is Genesis chapter 15, and this is Abram, before he's given the name Abraham, he's speaking to God. And he's ultimately bearing his soul and sharing the doubt that he has surrounding the promise that he's been given back in chapter 12. Look at at the very beginning of chapter 12 and you'll see that God promises to make him the father of many nations. And he's saying, how can this be? Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you can number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And look at Abraham's response. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. And this is, this is why we can truly, deeply say thanks be to God. He counted it to him as righteousness. This is the same phrase that Paul's going to use in verse 6. And here's what he says that's so powerful, that's so important. Counted to him means imputed. It means to set a mark on, and ultimately it means to credit one's account. When Abraham believed in the Lord, when he trusted in him, when he rested in who God is and what he's done, who he said he was, this is righteousness. God puts it on him. He puts it in his account. He imputes it to him in the same way that Christ's righteousness is reckoned, is counted to us. Look at what he says in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So for these people telling you that you've got to be circumcised, you've got to do these things, you've got to do works of the law, you've got to make these things happen in order to be in God's family, in order to be spiritual. Paul says, no. It's the people who are faith, have faith. They're the sons of Abraham. And the scripture in verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. What does it mean? Preach the gospel to him beforehand. This is the good news of God's promise that will all culminate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In his redemption and rule and reign. 
So Abraham has the opportunity to believe in, to trust in, to rest in God. And this is what Paul is laboring over. He's fighting for. He's saying, you people, you've been lied to. You've been deceived. Don't believe this. Trust in, rest in what Christ has done for you. And then he tells them the implications of what the law means for us. Look down into verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So what Paul is saying here is a culmination of of so many of historical and wisdom books of, of the Old Testament. Genesis through Numbers, really this understanding of the calling to, the responsibility to live in accordance with the law. But here's the problem. When we rely on works of the law, we find ourselves under a curse. Because we can't keep it. We just can't do it. Does anybody in here ever try to get better at stuff? It's the worst. Like, it's the absolute worst. I said I wasn't going to do this, but like Auburn, I thought, was trying to get better this week. All right? Look how that turned out. We are obsessed with running back to works of the law. With running back to things that you and I think we can control behaviors that we see might be an issue or might be a problem, but that we can correct. We'll figure it out. We'll we'll course correct. We'll get there. And then we'll just take the things that, that we do when we live under the law and we'll just compare it against somebody else's when we start to struggle. When we fail to make it. When we, when we, when we leave that place where we've realized we've fallen, we've broken... We'll just compare it with somebody else. This is what Paul is saying. You rely under works of the law. You're under a curse. The law and all of its beauty and all of its grandeur and the way that this teaching points us to the beauty of our faithful Father, who God is, also reveals something about us. It's not just that we're Far from perfect, we're as far as you can possibly be. We're completely sinful and separated from God. The law cannot justify us. The righteous, verse 11 says, shall live by faith. And here's the hope for you and me. Look down in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the language that that we so often in the faith describe as the great exchange. This is Christ taking our place. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it curses everyone who hanged on a tree. So the cross of Calvary is such that Jesus doesn't do a nice thing for us. Jesus takes on our sin, 
our shame, our guilt, our punishment. He takes it on himself in order that this might come true. The blessing of Abraham, that many nations would come to him. Look at the last line. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what Paul's describing here is the very work of God's three persons in this moment. That God in his providence brings his son who lives perfectly, takes our place, by the power of the Spirit, is resurrected. And when we believe that gospel, when we trust in what Jesus has done for us, the very Spirit of God transforms us and then, get this, indwells us. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse, verses 13 through 16. You'll see the very work of the Spirit. Go to Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 and you'll see that it's the Spirit that makes us new. It's the Spirit that gives faith. And this is Paul's entire point with what he's saying here. He's saying, this has all happened... Your relationship with God and Jesus has happened because of the work of the Spirit of God. Not what you do. And now you're free. The way that you live every day is out of what's already been done for you. It's really why Paul is using this counted to him language from Genesis because even that far back, there's this understanding of debits and credits. Of what I have versus what I don't have. And this is what Paul is saying. Everything. You have everything in Christ. You are without any need. And this is why he's so impassioned to tell this group of people, these churches, these folks in this area, that there is no other gospel. There's nothing else that you need apart from what Christ has done for you. There's nothing else. And he knows that they live in a world, and quite frankly, you know and I know that we live in a world where we're going to hear voices and we're going to believe lies and think that we have to do this extra stuff if we really want to please God. If we really are going to have Him look at us the way we want a loving Father to look at us. If we're really going to be truly accepted, and I'm not talking about like you get to be in and you get to come here on Sunday morning, but I'm talking about like you're really accepted. I mean, you're really loved. There's got to be something more i got to do. Now, I want you to ask yourself this question because I'm going to ask it to me right now, okay? What can I add to the cross of Jesus Christ? What can I add to it? What can I bring to it? Do you know what I contribute to it? It's cause. I only bring sin. I only bring brokenness. I come 
to the cross with a curse. And I leave with its blessing. Think about that. That's your story if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the curse. So that you could receive His Spirit. The promised Spirit through what? Look down at the last part of verse 14. What's the means? How does this happen? What's the mode of this? That we might receive the promised Spirit through works? No, through what? Through faith. Our God is so good that he does not save us and then leave us to our own devices. This is evidence of that. You know what the evidence is? Is That when you receive Christ, when you trust in Christ, when you believe the good news of what Jesus has done for you, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. That is reality. This is not a metaphor. And Paul's very quick to help these believers understand it's not a trick. It's not magic. It's mysterious, yes. But it's not an illusion and it's not sleight of hand. The very perfect personhood of Jesus Christ, his righteousness is just counted to you and me. It is given to you and me. That's the hope. That's the beauty. That's the joy. That frees us to say, man, if I want to become this person whose whose life is centered around the gospel, my goal is to wake up and believe it. To trust in what Christ has done for me. To recognize how loved, how accepted, how cared for, how providentially loved I am. And it's going to change. If we believe this gospel to be true, it's going to change the way that we relate to each other. The way we live in its reality. And it's going to change the way we see the world around us. And we're going to desire to live it out. If you're like me, you've heard this verse from Hebrews forever. A billion times. Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. Past, present, future. This is what Paul is saying in these verses. The Spirit started it. The Spirit does the work of sanctification, transforming us into the image, the likeness of Jesus. And the Spirit will finish it. It's all God at all times, past, present and future and you know what your big responsibility is it's to believe him to trust him to believe this is true 
Do you rest in that? You'll keep the law. But it won't be to get love. It'll be because you can't not do it. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we confess that it is often possible for us to be deceived. Father, we're lied to in in so many ways in this world. And quite often, Lord, we confess that it's easy for us to believe those lies. God, by the very power of your, your spirit that indwells us, will you assure us and remind us of the finished work of Jesus, the great exchange, what you've done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, to walk and live in this truth, There's no other gospel. There's no other good news. There's no other hope for us. Could we rest in this? Father, would you cause us to believe that the Spirit who started this work in us, who calls us to trust in you, to rest in you, to have faith in you and what you've done for us in Jesus, God, that it's your Spirit that will transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And we're called to just walk and live by your Spirit. Father, help us to do that. This morning, Father, we're going to sing and we're going to respond. And Father, we're going to ask you in this moment to, to guide us by the very power of your Spirit that indwells us. So Father... We come to you as people always in deep need. Father, we need your help. Father, by the power of your spirit, will you help us follow you? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.